Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? Welcome back, dear listeners, to episode 45 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. Today, we're joined by Monica Day. Monica is obsessed with the areas of life that invite us to admit our deepest desires, stir our greatest passions, and face our most potent fears. As both a writer and performer and a coach facilitator, she addresses the areas of race, gender, class, power, and sexuality in a myriad of ways. Ultimately, she sees these critical issues as holding the key to both our individual and collective freedom. Her performance credits include two solo shows, Song of the Sacred Whore and Falling into Love, and a collaborative effort, The Secret Order of the Libertines, An Intimate Revolution. She was the creator and host of Essentiality, an evening of erotic expression in New York City and Philadelphia, and the producer and lead coach for the Innovative Power of One program, which uses the solo show format as a vehicle for personal and cultural transformation. As a coach, she works with individuals and couples, offers workshops, and regularly offers innovative group programs. Welcome, Monica. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. And I think, you know, just going off the title of your book alone, this is such a relevant conversation today. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me too. So can you dive in with us a little bit and give us just a little bit of the essence of why this book, why now, and what the response has been so far? I know you just released it like this week. Yeah, the response has been a little surprising and exciting. I think that sometimes when you release a book about something that you've been doing and talking about and writing about in other venues for a long time, I guess sometimes we forget, right, that this can still be a revolution to people. And that's been really exciting. And I, the idea behind the book, I won't say that it was instigated by Fifty Shades of Grey, but I think that there was something about the phenomenon of Fifty Shades of Grey that as sexuality is certainly not everything that I work with people on, but I consider it foundational. You know, we eat, we sleep, we sex. It's that <laughs> it's a part of who we are. It's a part it's of our identities. It's a super, part of how we embody our bodies. Yeah, it's super simple to me and not to the rest of the world. So that's always been, you know, very important. So I saw that there was a chord, you know, hit and it showed us something, I think, culturally about ourselves, you know, about what we want. But it also showed us that we don't have the foundation and the skills in most of our relationships to actually get there, right? Mm-hmm. So in many ways, that's what this book does. And it's really not instructional. It's not, you know, tie here, blindfold there. It's not really like that. It's more, how do you, you know, first of all, create the safety to explore, you know, the erotic, right? So I'll back up and say one thing, which is that we all have these two sides of ourselves. And I think the author that articulated it best was actually Esther Perel in a book called Mating in Captivity. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the domestic and the erotic. And, you know, if you think about it in yourself and in people, you know, it makes so much sense, right? Our relationships often have this fiery beginning, right? And then people say, oh, I don't know what happened, you know, (laughs) that kind of dribbled off. And this is what happened. 
the domestic side kicks in. So the domestic side of us wants safety, it wants predictability. I always say it's that point in your relationship where, you know, and one day you say, no, let's not sleep in late and have sex all day. Let's go furniture shopping. (laughs) And you're like, oh, right? There it is. The domestic has kicked in and it nests. And it's very important for us to have that side of ourselves. I'm not comparing these and I'm not saying one is better than the other. But the way they exist together, that's the conversation. Yeah. It's a duality that we really need to be attentive to. Yeah. We need to nurture both. Yeah. Yeah. And so the erotic wants the exact opposite of of what the domestic wants. The erotic. I think Esther Perel would say that the erotic wants the mystery. Yeah. And the unpredictability and the taboo. And so this book really seeks to straddle that duality and talks about, okay, how can we inhabit both? I got giggles when you said it seeks to straddle that duality. It feels like there's a little alliteration on words there. But (laughs) (laughs) let's just dive in a little bit and talk about what this means. Like, how do we play wild and stay safe? That is the duality. That's exactly what you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about how one seeks to straddle that duality. Well, there are a few things that fill in that gap. The first one, which seems obvious but not easy, is communication. And in many ways, we don't have the language sometimes to really communicate in this area. And we also haven't built up kind of the courage, if you will, to have these conversations. And there are a lot of reasons for that, of course, right? Number one is we're not taught this, you know? I mean, we can't even decide whether to teach about the fact that sex exists at all, (laughs) Or what the criteria might be to have it, right? And then when we do teach about sex, we teach about how to not get pregnant. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when my kids were in middle school and I went to those, you know, okay, here's the curriculum and here's the sex ed curriculum as if this was, you know, a very contentious thing. (laughs) And I sat there through it and I thought, oh, great. You know, I could boil down the curriculum in one sentence. You know, sex is equivalent to a loaded gun. If you use it, you will die. You know, that was pretty (laughs) much the curriculum. And I was like, oh, this is horrible, you know. And then we can't figure out, you know, oh, we're so upset that our kids are learning about sex from pornography, but it's like we haven't really given them a choice. And that's all we've given them access to in many ways. And so in order for us to even begin to teach our children anything about sex, we have to learn about it ourselves. We have to be embodying it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, again, I'm saying that's sort of where it starts. And for many of us, depending on the age, you know, you might not have even gotten that much in school, right? right? And then there's the talk, you know, that you get from your parents. I mean, we're up against so much in this aspect of our lives. You know, it's cultural, it's how we grew up, it's shame that is often built in, you know, to our religious institutions. I mean, like, I can go on and on. So it's really never shocking to me that people aren't equipped in this area of their life. I'm more shocked when they are. I'm like, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) I totally relate with that though. Yeah. It's such an exploration to get to a place where one's sexuality is something that one doesn't feel shame around. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's a lot of, you know, sort of, and so one of the reasons why I say this isn't all that I do, but it's foundational because I found, you know, if people are all cloudy in that part of their lives, it spills over into everything, you know? I mean, like I say, when I say we eat, we sleep, we, you know, have sex, trying very hard not to curse on your show, by the way. It's okay if you do. You can just be be you. It's fine. I'm generally a potty mouth. But, you know, so it's like, yeah, if we have insomnia, we think, oh, that's terrible. We have to do something about it. You know, if we have, you know, we're disordered and dysfunctional in our eating, oh, we have to fix that. But sex, oh, man, you can live without that. (laughs) It's like, no, you can't. So anyway, so yes, it's foundational. So communication is a big one. And then when you dig deeper into communication, what you find, not only in the sexual realm, but in every part of our lives, we have more language for judgment than we do for sensation. All right, stop. I just want to sit with that comment for a minute. We have Mm -hmm. more language for judgment than we do for sensation. Yep. So I can say, oh, that feels good. That feels bad. (laughs) Which tells me nothing about 
what you're actually feeling or what I'm actually doing that you liked. But if you say, oh, softness of the tip of your finger on my forearm sends shivers all the way up you know, to my neck. And, oh, if you could dig your nails in just a little bit more with a little more pressure. Oh, (laughs) that is so different (laughs) and huge. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's the difference between communication and transmission. Yes. Right. I've transmitted the feeling to you. You can now feel in your body what I have just felt in mine. So this brings me to just like the noticing of our language. And also in my work, and I'm sure in your work, you find this too, that so many of us humans, we walk around these days cut off from our sensory experiences. Yes. And sex is the perfect place to learn how to drop into those. Right. You know, for years, I called my business and my website, The Sensual Life. And you know, I learned over time that it didn't communicate as much to people as it did to me, but it really is that whole realm. I I consider sexuality on the continuum of sensuality and that it really is about how do we inhabit, you know, a body and how do we use this body for what it is, which is a vehicle for everything we experience in our entire lives, right? Like from the time you're born to the time you die, you're having a sensual experience. Exactly. And you can either have that experience in a really tight, constricted, closed off way, or you can have that experience in a liberated, expansive way. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. And it's so interesting that we spend most of our lives at odds with our body, right? Whether it's the right, oh, absolutely. Whether it's the right shape, whether it's the right size, you know, the desires, you know, the whole nine yards. It's like there are many, you know, spiritual paths that try to tell you that your body is, you know, like your enemy. (laughs) It's the, you know, original sin. I have another book coming out, and one of the lines it won't be out for a few more months. We'll do this again when it comes out. Let's please. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what I say in there is, I am not original sin. And it took me years to climb out of that one. So we do come into this world feeling somehow inherently wrong and bad just for the sin of being born into a body, which, you know, and again, I'm not trying to have a religious conversation here, but... Well, this is um, a spiritual conversation. It is in many ways. And it is, you know, something that many people take on as a repression of their very being that they struggle with their entire lives. Because we get so many messages about what is and what isn't okay, right? There's a story, and I I just wish I could stop blanking on this researcher's name. Maybe it'll come to me as I talk about it. But there was a seminal piece of research that was done on sexuality over many, many years. And this researcher asked, you know, thousands of people, did, you know, many, many interviews. And he said, the one question that everybody wanted to know at the very end when he said, you know, do you have any questions for me before we end this interview? And they would all say, yeah, am I normal? Yes. Right? Everybody am I wants normal? To know normal? Everybody wants to know if they're normal. And, you know, I believe what he would say to them was yes, because it was all in a continuum, right? But that was their biggest fear. So, you know, we spend a lot of time um, squashing very primal parts of ourselves. And so again, you know, back to why this book, because there's so much freedom. One of the things I learned and the reasons I say that sex is foundational, but not the focus of, you know, my work with people is because I look at people's sex a little bit like other people read tea leaves. If you tell me about your sex, I can tell you about every other part of your life. Go deeper there, please. (laughs) Okay, breathe. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes this parallel. If it's a place where I'm taking risks in that part of my life, then I can often take risks in other parts of my life. If it's a place where I feel a lot of shame and a lot of constraint, often I see that I feel shame and constraint in other parts of my life. It's a mirror in many ways. Also, Taking risk also boils back to feeling safe, doesn't it? There's an interplay. There's a dance there. Yeah, there is an interplay, but we have to start to examine what we mean by safe. 
And I think this is a huge cultural conversation as well. Yeah. I remember touring colleges with my daughter and they pointed out a room and they said, that's a safe space. And I, my daughter was looking at me. She's like, mom, you know, like the kids look at me, mom, please be quiet. Please don't embarrass me. Right. (laughs) And then finally she's like, okay, just go ahead. I want to know too. And I said, who decides what's safe in there and how do you know? And that is what we don't get Mm -hmm. an opportunity to decide for ourselves when we are not attuned sensually in our bodies, when we don't have the radar that comes with being open in our bodies and aware of our sensation, then we're dependent on people saying, oh, this is safe. How many times do people feel betrayed? Because they said, well, someone told me this was safe and then it wasn't. Well, what did your body tell you? Right? How do we redefine safety? So we discover for ourselves what feels safe and what doesn't rather than what the culture. So here's, so it's a I'm practice of discernment, practice of noticing. It is. So I'm going to open up a huge can of worms here, Rebecca, okay, go for right? It. One of the ways, and of course, evolution happens much slower and we're in this period, right? Where everything is moving much faster than we are as humans evolving, right? Technology, everything else, right? So historically, you know, people thought they were safe when, I don't know, everybody around you is from here and looks like you. Well, you know, we know when we're all the same, when we're all the same, we all practice the same religion, have the same skin color, go to the same schools, do right. the same kind of work. All of the wives stay home and make dinner and well, whatever it is, you know, that wasn't always, that's one culture, but it doesn't matter. Every culture is the same, regardless of what the roles were, what we're looking for is belonging. Mm-hmm. And one of the tricks now is that we have to attune ourselves to belonging in different ways. We all know intellectually, some of us are not safer in our family than we are in other places. Sometimes it's in our family that we're being abused and hurt. And we're not less safe around people with different skin tones than us, but somehow that gets put into our system. So part of it is getting down to different ways of judging belonging, of safety, of, you know, am I okay? Am I not okay? And there's a real, I guess, the way that the culture is right now is that we're using flight, fight, and freeze (laughs) responses. And that is what's being stimulated over and over and over and over again. And so one of the things that I find in my work is that if people can open up in their physical being to other signals of, am I safe? Am I not? When does my radar go off? When doesn't it? A lot of times people can't even discern. You know, if I said to you right now, I don't know, how's your left elbow? You have no idea. You know, we're not attuned to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's we, a practice of attuning to our bodies. Like we really have to learn how to make the space to drop into what, to our bodies. I think we have to relearn. I think that we come in with it. I think if you watch babies, they know. Oh, they well, know every asked, single yeah, thing. Yeah. Every single thing. You watch and, their face. And they are learning. You know, like when you watch a baby and they have those like little motor responses where their whole, mm-hmm. they get that whole like little tremble, those reflexes are them learning their body. Right. And then somewhere along the line, what we start to do is we quote unquote, teach them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Don't do that. Do this. Yes. And of course, some of it is very important. We do have to teach them. Yes. Please don't put your finger in that plug because that's not something they're necessarily going to know. And we don't Mm -hmm. want them to learn that by trial and error because the error is bad. (laughs) The error is very bad. Sometimes. Sometimes. But what we often don't teach them is to continue to use the the natural attunement they already have and start to help them extrapolate that in more and more mature ways. But instead, we teach them, don't talk to strangers, don't do this, don't do that, don't do right, all those kinds of things. So I really have a belief that we have systems that will readjust just like the earth, right? The earth has a way of, you know, 
readjusting. We see it now, right? And as the climate and things happen, like fires and floods, and that's all the earth adjusting, right? And we like to anthropomorphize it, right? We, oh, she's angry. Mother Earth is angry. Well, maybe, but look, she's also just readjusting, you know, she's out of balance, out of sync. So we are a natural system, just like every other natural system. And the same things apply to us. So I believe that we really can always be adjusting and in tune with our surroundings. We call it intuition, but we need to be acclimated or attuned to what are all of the little indicators along the way. I love that you went there and that intuition is this recalibration system. It's the way that we check in with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we use it in our sexual lives just as much as we use it in every other part of our lives. And I actually think our sexual lives is the place, I call it our source code. Orgasm is our source code. It is the fulcrum of our recalibration. Break that down a little bit further so that we can digest it more. Source code and fulcrum of our recalibration. Those are big words. (laughs) So in that part of our lives, it is our most sensitive place. So I'll break it down even more to genitalia. So let's just go with the clitoris, for example. The clitoris has something like, I wish I could remember the number, but 70,000 nerve endings, right? It is the most sensitive part of the female body. The male genitals have somewhat less, but it's only because that part of them is stretched over a larger volume of space. Exactly. (laughs) So if you think about it, how could that not be? If that's our most sensitive place, that is the place where we can become most attuned. We can be most sensitive. It is our radar. And we can tap into that to be the most finely connected with the other and with ourselves. And that can become kind of our source of information for everything else. Oh, let me go to that space. Okay, I can feel. Here's a great example. Here's a great analogy, I think. When my best friend in high school went to college to be a chiropractor and an exercise that they used to do so that they could run their fingers over a spine and underneath, you know, clothing and, you know, skin and the whole thing, they could feel subluxations. They would put a single human hair underneath a phone book. I know some people don't remember those. Do you remember those, Rebecca? Phone books with very, very thin pages. And they would practice how many pages could they feel that hair underneath, right? (sighs) So this is how we train ourselves to be more sensitive to our environment. We use the most sensitive part of ourselves and we bring our awareness and attention to that. Does that make more sense now? It does. Yeah. It does. It's a deep fine tuning. Very, very deep fine tuning. Very much so. And I believe that that is when I call it code, I really do believe that that is part of kind of human code for how to be in the world and how to use these bodies the way that Mm -hmm. we're supposed to. Yeah. I'm just breathing all this in. This is delicious. It's so (laughs) refreshing. You know, I have to say that the book does not go this deep in terms of some of these theories, but I had to start somewhere. So this book really is a beginning, I would say, to how do we even start to open ourselves up to all of what might be available to us in this realm. I love this because I think these are conversations that on individual and on more collective levels that we all need to be having more of these days. I absolutely agree. Yes. Can you give us an example of some of the guidance in the book, like some of your favorites? Yeah, I can. Well, you know, there's a very big, bold statement right in the beginning that says, warning, intimacy is inevitable. (laughs) It's funny. I have a very similar warning on my podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I really don't gear this towards any particular flavor of relationship. I mean, I really don't 
have an opinion. If it's a one night thing, if it's a lifelong thing, if you have the same genitals, different genitals, it really doesn't matter to me. That's like a bring your own, you know, BYOG, bring your own genitals. <laughs> but <laughs> because this isn't about genitals, it's about the inner knowing and the conversations that come from there. Exactly. And I want people to understand that, you know, intimacy is just a natural outgrowth of these practices of being closer to someone, of sharing with someone. One of the things I talk about is cultivating curiosity. That's important regardless of, you know, whether you've been with that person for an hour or, you know, most of your life, you have to maintain a curiosity about them. They're not the same person they were yesterday. I know I'm not the same person I was five minutes ago. It would be so boring if everybody was the same. Well, that's why people are bored. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about is, that you know, 10, 12 years ago, I couldn't have written this book. I was part of the, you know, masses who were stuck in, you know, sort of what I call the epidemic of sexual dissatisfaction. How did you find yourself pulling out of that? Uh, Well, (laughs) it was a little dramatic. I was extraordinarily stressed out. I, you know, had my own business. I was self-employed. I had put my ex-husband through school. So I was breadwinning, raising two kids. And I had a very, I would say, not a very healthy dynamic in my relationship. And it really wasn't all sexual. In fact, I didn't even put my finger on the button of our sexuality. I refer sometimes to sex in a relationship as the canary in the coal mine. And our canary was dead, but I didn't know it. Uh, (laughs) That was the problem. But when I asked for a separation, I said, I'm pretty sure that I'm one cell division away from cancer. And that was how it felt in our system. And you know, do you ever notice, like, do you ever hear when people go and they get these, you know, diagnoses and, you know, they're at a stage four or something like that, or, you know, or like we don't attune to illness sometimes in our body until it's way, way down the line. Right. That's part of this. So that's how I was feeling. I was like, something is so wrong and I don't know how to correct it. All I know is like a little separation would be helpful. And that was kind of the beginning, you know, of this journey that I started to take. And that's when I started to realize, like, it came up for me in poetry. I often say poetry is my first language and poetry. You are a good poet. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That was part of how we met. It was. And I started writing erotic poetry and I didn't know where it was coming from because, you know, I was, for the most part, I was depressed. I was separated. I would drop my kids off in the morning and come home and sit on the couch and all of a sudden it was time to go pick them up. I could not tell you what I did during those hours. I had no idea, which was really not conducive to running a business, I might add. (laughs) But out of somewhere, I was writing erotic poetry. And then I went and I started reading it places and that just started to tumble me, you know, and then I took a workshop and, you know, all of this and started to tumble me down this rabbit hole around, you know, it really wasn't even around sex first. It was around like my desire. I went to a workshop and somebody asked, what do you want? And they really wanted to know. And all I could do was cry. I mean, you didn't know. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I've come to find out, and it's interesting, I just, you know, did a half day workshop with a group of women dentists in the Midwest, you know, very random. I go to random places and have these random conversations. And, you know, it was just as confronting for them as it was for me over 10 years ago. And it was interesting, you know, we live in this culture where everybody's like, what do you want? Well, I don't know, you know, a new house and a new kitchen and a better car. And, you know, things are the first things that things. come to mind, you know, things or more I money. I want to make more money. I want to, yeah. Mm-hmm. And every single time I drill down into that question, first for myself and then with other people, and again, not just women, women and men, the, the bottom line answer is never the things and it's never the money. It's the time, it's the connection, it's being closer to people, it's love, it's all of these things is what we really want. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, I believe we all want to feel like we really belong. Absolutely. It's a base. It's a core. It's a core thing. So back to the sexual dissatisfaction. Again, when I say sex are the tea leaves to our lives, you know, you notice as people go along, 
there's a general dissatisfaction. There's a point people get to that like, this is it really? I did the whole script. I went to school. I got the job. I did, you know, whatever their script was, everybody's script is different, but they live the script. And then they kind of look around and they're like, wow, this is it, huh? (laughs) So yeah. And there's always an edge, right? Like I think no matter where we are and how liberated or closed off we are around our own sense of sexuality, there's always an edge. Well, exactly. So that's why I backed off a little when you said we all want to be safe. We need to know we are safe so that we can let go and explore, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's not a lot different than, you know, and I keep going back to this metaphor, but, you know, I raised two children and I remember, you know, they had to feel safe enough to go explore, to go run and fall down and all of that kind of thing. I mean, that's what we need too. It totally is. And when I'm thinking about safety, I'm thinking about it on a few different levels. Like if I'm thinking about my relationship with my partner, I'm thinking, well, I need to feel safe within myself to ask for the things I desire and want. Mm -hmm. And he has to feel that within himself to ask for those things. And we have to feel enough of a space of non-judgment that we can have those conversations with each other. Absolutely. Non-judgment. Another big one is people often, in order to protect their monogamy, they shut down a lot of their desire. (laughs) Desire. Yeah, exactly. And here's the way I express it is that when people take whatever the commitment is, whether it's, you know, marriage or just saying, you know, we're going to be exclusive or whatever it is, there's an unspoken commitment in there that says, I promise to never want more than I think you're willing to give me. And it's a relationship killer. It is. So again, you know, back to what I talk about in the book, I talk about these dualities and polarities that we need in order to have tension in our relationship. We need tension in our relationships. That's very important. Masculine, feminine. Within each of us. Within each of us and with each other. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Leading and following. Dominance and submission. If you want to go a little bit further with that. Fantasy and reality. We need the tension between these things in order to have the juice, you know, in our relationship. Um, and I'll go one step further and say, and I talk about this a little in the book, the book is a very simple, direct, I don't go, you know, it really is like a place to start, but I talk about how sometimes our curiosity is politically inconvenient. Egalitarian in the workplace is great. Egalitarian in the bedroom is boring. It is. is. It is. And even to a certain degree, uh, when people try to kind of enforce, and again, I'm not trying to return us to roles and expectations in our relationships that are repressive, but there is a certain degree where roles can be relaxing. It's all about the nervous system. So to me, for example, in my marriage, when I was in many ways holding down the full breadth of feminine and masculine and everything to do with all of it, my nervous system was like exhausted. Totally out of whack totally out of whack. And I have come to realize that understanding the time and place for my feminine self to be engaged and the time and place for my masculine self to be engaged, and then the right balance of that between me and a partner is really important. And it doesn't always look like 50-50. It almost never looks like 50-50, to be honest. So we have to get a better understanding, a broader understanding of balance. And, you know, I think balance I find to be very elusive because there's always movement. We think of balance, we think of staticness, but there's no such thing there's no as such static thing. balance, Mm-mm. right? That's like you're going to topple over. But like even when I think about, I just had a yoga class this morning. We were doing handstands and I'm thinking about all the subtle shifts within me just to try to find that subtle stillness, Mm -hmm. which wasn't at all still. It was incredibly active. And I think our sex lives are so much the same and all the parts of our lives. It's not just about finding something and staying there. It's about finding something within us and adjusting. 
Well, exactly. And I once wrote an article that said, what to do when your orgasm isn't where you left it. (laughs) And... Right. And I think we've all had as you go through, you know, life, I think we've all had that experience where, you know, you get into a groove, right? It's like, oh, A plus B equals C. I know that, right? A plus B. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I did A plus B. Where's C? <laughs> why is it why is it not going that way? Right. And it's because we are dynamic. You know, our sex is dynamic. We change throughout our lives. Our bodies change, our sensibilities change, what what we like, what we don't, what we get curious about. So yeah, we can't treat ourselves as static beings. And we certainly can't treat the person we're in relationship with. As a static Um, being. Exactly. Exactly. This is so yummy. (laughs) (laughs) You talked a lot about, you know, your book being about receiving. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we could go there a little bit, because Mm -hmm. I think for some people, giving might be easier than receiving. Yes, that is true for a lot of people. Although there's a couple sides of that. Both require a certain amount of risk, Mm -hmm. but they require different risks. So receiving, right? And I'm going to guess from your question that maybe that's the harder part of the equation for you. Uh I'm just going to guess, maybe. <laughs> because there is a place, and again, you have to relax the nervous system and you have to trust and you have to let that person in to your field, right? And it's about surrender. How do I surrender to this, to this moment, to this pleasure, to this sensation, whatever it is? Giving is a different kind of risk. In giving, I'm taking control of someone's nervous system. And I have to take a risk to try something. Will they like it or won't they like it? Right? So for some people, that risk. So it's a little bit confronting on both sides of that. Yeah, but that confrontation is important. It's not something that we should shy away from because it's confrontational. It's the exploration. Absolutely. And In the back of the book, I have 12 exercises and they're each geared, you know, to have you touch on different types of risks or new things to try. And in each of them, you know, it's like you try it in one direction and then switch, you know, so that everybody is getting a chance to try both sides of that equation, you know, so And I give some tips, you know, so when you're surrendering, Mm -hmm. you know, feel everything without preference, expect resistance, expect that there will be this part of you that wants to push back a little bit. And can you relax into it? Can you invite pleasure in? Can you be open to surprises and lean into your edges? And then when you are in the giving position, Can you revel in being the creator of that moment? And can you stay attentive to your partner and to yourself? Notice the resistance of that. Where do you want to stop? Where are you willing to go a little bit further? So, yeah. And again, that's that attunement. The words that are creeping out at me as you're talking are the surrender and the creation. Mm. Mm -hmm. I find that to be a really interesting way to sit with this giving receiving kind of dichotomy Mm -hmm. that one of you is really surrendering to the experience and the other one is creating. Yes. Yes. And that's such an important distinction. And people often don't slow down enough to even, I do some work with couples. And one of the things is very few couples, unless they you know, maybe do some, you know, practices or they've done a little bit of work in, you know, specific areas, BDSM, that kind of thing. But, you know, your average couple (laughs) that has, you know, whatever, you know, their give and take is that is in their back and forth of sexing. If you ask them, like, who's in the lead or who's in charge, I mean, maybe they have a sense of who initiates kind of thing, but they have no sense of like, who's in the lead and who's following at any given moment which to me means no one's consciously creating a moment and no one is consciously surrendering to it. Which means it's not a conscious moment. It's not a conscious connection. Well, it just means that everybody's just sort of 
I don't know, going along, but not really. Nobody's in charge. <laughs> which, which I'm thinking which, of other places in life where that wouldn't work so good. Exactly. Going along and nobody's in charge. Well, exactly. <laughs> so why do we think that works in sex? It doesn't work anywhere else. <laughs> it's, it's never a good idea. I mean, whenever two people or whatever, a group of people is taking on a task, you know, usually... You need somebody to be in charge and somebody, yeah, to hold the space. Exactly. Exactly. And I will say, and not to give away, you know, but the very final exercise, which I think what's interesting about it is that most people feel as though it's the most confronting. And yet I feel like it's just so important. The final exercise in the book is called be a sacred witness, which is Yeah, which is just that moment where you watch your partner and like not from that. And I really instruct people like this is not you're not putting on a show for that person. And if you're witnessing your partner, like you're not giving them like don't touch, don't coach, just witness. And it's so confronting to people to do this. Like it takes the whole book (laughs) to get them there. Yeah. But I think that, again, this comes down to something so foundational, and I call it being a sacred witness. And can you really just allow yourself to emerge with the person, you know, witnessing you? And can you just... it's more confrontational to be on the receiving end of that or the creation end of that? I think both. Yeah. I think both. I don't know. I think it's different for everyone, but I think it's both. Yeah. That both are confrontational. Both are, yeah, just challenging. Mm -hmm. There's a profound shyness sometimes. And to me, that's that intimacy place. The shynesses. Shyness and innocence. Like we forget that we have innocence still. You know, I really hate this. Oh, yeah. You know, if you lost your virginity, you lost your innocence. Good God. I found innocence way later in life. And I'll throw something in here. You know, I lost my virginity non-consensually. That was not my choice. So, and I'm throwing that out there because, you know, this is part of the cultural conversation happening right now too. That's very common. So that's something a lot of couples are up against, you know, one or the other, or both of them have probably had circumstances, you know, that that they, yeah, that were non-consensual, that were non-consensual and it leaves a mark. You know, there are patterns of trauma that people have undertaken or undergone in their system and that's going to come up. And, you know, I, for one, encourage people keep working through that. That was a big part of my life. You know, I was 14 when that happened. So that shaped a lot of my journey around my sexuality. And I can honestly claim myself healed from that. I can honestly say that is not in my cells anymore, but I could not say that until I was in my forties. Right. And I think this is a journey that a lot of people are going through. And I find that a lot of the quote unquote healing work that happens around sexual trauma ends before people get to the place of really feeling sexually liberated, where they feel like they can re-embody their sexuality. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know it was true for me. And I stumbled upon the final steps of my healing when I was undertaking some of this learning that I was going through around sensuality and sexuality. I thought I was as good as it gets. And I think that's an important distinction. I thought... Because I did all the things, right? I did the therapy. I did the conversation. I re-virginated. You know, the guy I was with at the time was like, really? With me? You're re- Yeah, sorry. With you, I'm re-virginating. Uh, <laughs> so that I could lose. I mean, I did all the things. But there was still a startle response. Yeah. There was still a way that you couldn't, you know, come up behind me. There were still things in my system. And then they got released from what I call my cellular memory, which happened through a practice that I was doing. It was an orgasmic practice. And I felt it release from my system. And it was very distinct. And then it was like, oh, sure. Time me up. Great. Come up behind me. Great. Like it was all, everything was fine. I didn't have it in my system anymore. But it took work. I mean, like you said, it took a practice. It took... It took, I had to keep going. 
And, you know, I mean, within your own defined within my own exploration, like I had to be willing to. And I think that what sometimes people do, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, I don't love the use of the word trigger often is getting overused. You know, people say, oh, I'm triggered. No, you're just having a feeling. (laughs) You know, I mean, there is such a thing as being triggered in a psychological sense, but people are using it often as oh, I'm uncomfortable. I'm having a feeling about that. And that needs to go away. (laughs) When we keep pushing all of the feelings, especially the ones that we don't want, we get into trouble. I often talk about how, you know, the root of the word emotion is motion. And we need that movement in there that if we're Mm. not going through the feelings, if we're not sitting with our feelings, all of them, they get stuck in us somewhere. I Love that. Yes, that's really well said. And I totally agree. And I think that is, again, when you come to what is safety, you know, wildness and safety. And there is a point where I think we overvalue safety. It's one of the reasons why I also don't teach through the lens of pleasure. And a lot of people do, a lot of people in the sort of sex education world. And I have anything against pleasure. But I feel as though there's so much more available to us in the realm of sensuality to sexuality, that that's also where we can meet our shadow. That's where we can meet so many things that are not just in the realm of pleasure. I love that you brought the shadow into that because I think that sensuality certainly encompasses the shadow along, you know, on that continuum of sexuality. Pleasure doesn't necessarily encompass the shadow. Well, it doesn't. And, you know, a word that I love to use, and I think this is something, again, we're seeing in the culture right now as we're sort of breaking down these systems and patterns of, you know, sexual abuse to harassment and and all of that. And I think we're in a very early, early stage of that conversation. And I think there's way further to go. But one of the things that we need to do Okay, two things. The first thing is that we need to be able to discern between sex the act and sex the energy. And there's a lot of confusion. The minute somebody starts feeling or sensing sex the energy, there's this thing that it has to automatically go into the act. (laughs) It really doesn't. And then the other thing we have to start to understand is mastery of sexual energy. And there's a difference between mastery and repression. And mastery of sexual energy is when we can allow it and we can feel it, but we can also contain it, harness it, direct it, and use it as a fuel. So what I mean by that is um, if I've got water and it's spilled on the floor, all I can really, like other than maybe if it's on the ground, it can water some plants, it's useful that way. But otherwise, I mean, I just have a mess that I have to clean up. But if I've got water and I've got it in a glass, well, then I can drink it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? You have control over it. You Yes. And I control might be the right word or not. I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, this is sort of why I use mastery. I have a talk that most people are afraid of inviting me to give uh, (laughs) because I like to give it to businesses and I call it sexy business. And People are like, oh, you know, you can't say those two things together. And, you know, the more this all comes out, I'm like, you know, y'all better start having me come and talk about this. Because, first of all, let me just say, there is such a thing as just predatory behavior. And I think, you know, again, as we look at the Harvey Weinsteins and that type of thing, that's certainly predatory behavior. But there's this whole huge swath that I call the muddy middle. And if we could clean up a lot of the muddy middle, then it would make it a lot easier easier for us to recognize and root out the predators because we wouldn't be so confused. And that's the issue is that we are so confused. It's a lot of the issue is that we don't have a great grasp of boundaries. We don't have access to our voice. We're very confused between power, you know, power dynamics, getting caught up in sexual dynamics. If we could start to have some fluency and mastery over our sexual energy um, within ourselves and among 
each other in every part of our lives. So much could be cleaned up that a predator could be spotted a million miles away. They wouldn't be hiding amongst all the confusion. I think in many ways, though, we're not trusting ourselves. I'm using a very collective we here, but Mm -hmm. we're not trusting ourselves to recognize predators. And that's a piece of this because we're not dropping into that intuition and the place within ourselves that we learn how to sit with the messier emotions like fear and that doesn't feel good and literally sit with those feelings enough to even recognize them. Well, right. And we're also not having broader, deeper conversations. We're very stuck now in a lot of sort of victim blame, you know, and again, I don't want to say it's almost like you can't speak at all right now until people just go move through this cycle. You know, people have to just claim what happened to them. And there is this thing of like, you know, you're never wrong if you're a victim, you know, you're not at fault. Like, and I get that. Like there's some part of me that's just sort of taking a step back and saying, okay, I get, we have to get through this stage, but there are more stages of that dialogue coming. Yeah. And I think think they're really important. There have to be more stages coming. There does. And I feel in many ways like, you know, again, I'm going to come back to this very basic places where I'm starting. Like I said, oh, I didn't tackle all that in the book. I didn't tackle all that in the book for a reason, you know, because there needs to be a place where we start. And I think that just this very basics of figuring out how to be safe, figuring out how to take risks, attuning ourselves to our body is a really important first step. It's a really dynamic first step. And without it, we have no foundation for the next step. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Oh, Monica, thank you so much for joining in this conversation today. And I really hope that we get to dive deeper in another conversation soon. Thank you so much. This was super fun, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation with Monica Day. I find that these conversations are so culturally relevant right now. And on a personal level, it gives us the permission that maybe we need to go to a deeper place within ourselves and allow ourselves to explore how we feel about these things and what sensuality and sexuality have to do with who we are and how we experience the world. I'd love for you to help me keep these conversations going here on the Pobscast. So I'd like to invite you to donate by visiting practiceofbeingseen.com slash support to give us a little, maybe buy us a cup of coffee or something a little bit more, whatever feels right to you. Then go ahead and share why you're supporting us by using the Pobscast hashtag on social media. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show, and will join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>